program to chill, show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica, with your host, Jimmy Falangong. This is episode 10 on the series Who Financed Hitler, part 4, or Economics and Mass Ritual. Today I'm recording from the Brocken at the peak of the Harz Mountains. Before the sun came up, May 7, 1919, messengers carried copies of the Versailles Treaty to the top Allied officials. No one had seen its finished form yet, and it freaked them out when they did. Herbert Hoover, chief of the Allied Food Relief Services and senior American economic advisor, was woken up at 4 a.m. to receive his copy, and he read it and was horrified. Too upset to sleep, he started walking around Paris in the morning, and he met General Smuts, which, lol, <laughs> General Smuts, of South Africa, who was also out walking, pacing. And he met John Maynard Keynes, also out, early in the morning, pacing. Hoover said, It all flashed in our minds why each of us was walking about at that time in the morning. Even Woodrow Wilson thought the treaty was way too harsh, and said, If I were a German, I think I should never sign it. I bet Bernard Baruch and John Foster Dulles were sleeping like babies. The good sleep of the damned. And they were, of course, the individuals most responsible for the punitive measures therein, as we saw in episode 3. And, to be clear, they were not the only ones. Britain and France also wanted to forever weaken Germany. So, to be fair, Baruch and John Foster Dulles, they did not exclusively cause World War II. Now, it's worth covering a few facts about the Versailles Treaty, and bear in mind that I don't really care that the German Empire got stunted or carved up, except in as much as it caused events later. The terms of the treaty basically made it impossible for Germany to repay their reparations. They lost 25,000 square miles of land inhabited by 6 million people. Germany lost all of her colonies, 65% of her iron ore reserves, 45% of her coal, 72% of her zinc, 12% of key agricultural areas, 10% of, of all industry, and as we've mentioned before, the German army was limited to 100,000 without any reserves, and the German Navy was functionally eliminated. The Air Force was entirely abolished. The total indemnity was set at 32 billion plus interest, with a fixed annuity of 500 million plus a 26% tax on exports. The annuities would not even cover the interest charges, so indebtedness would increase every single year, even if they paid faithfully. Germany's entire economy was export-based, and the Versailles Treaty limited exports, so it was basically an economic death sentence. In some ways, it resembled Haiti's debts to France. Now, for reference, I'm talking about when Haiti declared independence, fought for their independence, and were forced to pay for the price of France's lost property, which included slaves, their own citizens. The major difference, of course, is that Germany was allowed to renege on their debts, and Haiti was not. And, of course, Germany's debt was due to war, which they were definitely guilty of at least participating in, while Haiti's debt was literally the price of freedom. Haiti, of course, was still paying off this debt until 1947. To the Bank of New York, 
now Citibank no less, to point out the double standard or to bring up, I don't know, say Greek debts to Germany in more recent times, that would probably be redundant here, right? And of course, heaven forbid we mention the racial element. Obviously, Germany allowed to just not pay their debts. We could never possibly allow Haiti to do the same. Can't even think of it. So the Versailles Treaty was obviously about crushing the German economy. And you can tell that this is the case in a bunch of ways. Like, you remember how last episode Hitler showed that he understood that Germany was an export economy. As a result, Germany had a massive shipping fleet. Britain literally confiscated it. They literally took all of the freighters and passenger liners, with the exception of boats under 1,600 tons. They literally left Germany with nothing but fishing boats. There was no possible way Germany could pay reparations without a fleet to carry exports. But of course it wasn't about actually repaying, right? At the same time, Britain and France threw up punishing tariffs, some of which were outright commercial warfare. Britain's McKenna tariff put a 33% duty on all foreign automobiles, but they chose to interpret it as applying the tariff to anything with clockwork mechanisms under the implausible argument that they moved under their own power like an automobile. For example, toy dogs and dolls manufactured in Germany were getting hit with 33% tariffs. They also put that tariff on automobile parts and accessories, and they applied that extremely broadly. Like, a shipment of plate glass unrelated to cars could get hit with it under the theoretical argument that it could be used for automobile windows. The industrialists knew the purpose of these measures. That's why they decided to give full support to any government that would negotiate reforms, but also carry out a secret program of rearmament. The Versailles Treaty was so obviously designed to enslave Germany that German businessmen immediately thought of clandestine invasion. In some ways, you could compare the Versailles Treaty to U.S. Prohibition because it completely undermined all common morality, because it turned the entire nation into a country of liars. Just as how in the U.S., massive swaths of people just kept drinking and lied, and tons and tons of them, of course, profited, so it was with the Versailles Treaty. So, like we mentioned last episode, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party, and the Catholic Center Party were the ones who signed the Versailles Treaty. A Social Democratic official of the Prussian government said, The Social Democrats are the most effective defenders of capitalism, for they, better than anybody else, have learned the technique of explaining convincingly to the workers how it is not yet possible to take steps towards setting up a socialist state and why it is necessary to wait a while longer. It's hard to uh, be any more clear than that. The general staff of the German army welcomed the existence of a moderate revolutionary government in Berlin that would take the odious responsibility of negotiating and signing the peace treaty. The SDP and the Catholic Center Parties would collectively lose over 11 million votes by being the ones stuck holding the bag, signing the Versailles Treaty, even though they were over the barrel and had to. It was in this precise, bizarre atmosphere of chaos and economic depression that radical elements of the political right and left found uniquely suited to allow them to grow. And that is something that people 
across the political spectrum don't understand that the Nazi party flourished under very weird and particular circumstances. Even though it's not entirely the same, the Bolsheviks came to power under very weird and unique circumstances as well. Different circumstances, but nonetheless. That's why you can't assume that there's going to be a Nazi party or another Bolshevik party unless there's really weird stuff going on, which, as we see in history, that can happen. But under normal circumstances, no. Now, I would like to talk about something that I touched on in prior episodes, which is to say heavy and light industry and how they have different yet overlapping economic and class interests. Understanding what these industries were and how they acted in the Weimar Republic and then Nazi Germany helped me understand how the Nazis came to power, and it helped me understand the United States and the world economy much better. Now I promise, a lot of this is going to be kind of boring economic talk, but at the end, there's a treat. We're talking esoteric stuff, so we'll get to it. Just stay with me. So heavy industry, historically, consisted of iron and coal mining, iron and steel production, other metals as well, certain types of manufacturing also usually included, like for instance artillery, locomotives, machine tool manufacturing. Over time, heavy industry also began to include shipbuilding as ships became larger and using more metal, as well as automobile manufacturing. After a certain point, chemical and electrical plants would be included in the definition of heavy industry as well. With the exception of like a consumer market for coal in the old days, almost all heavy industry would sell to other businesses and governments. Light industry, on the other hand, is mainly manufacturing, like shoes, food, textiles, appliances, electronics, furniture, literally on a, like on a basic level, it's manufacturing that weighs less than heavy industry. Like, we're talking literally the machines used for each of these, to refer back to the name. Electronics is a good example of a type of manufacturing that can have traits of both, and the categories of heavy and light industry are only meaningful in a general sort of way. They're not, they're not real, they're conceptual models, right? <clears throat> And there's all kinds of counterexamples, but by and large, it holds up. It's an interesting and valuable way of understanding industry. Heavy industry is very capital intensive and has way more fixed costs. It's closer to commodities, so the, or sometimes it is literally just commodities. So the profit margins are generally smaller, but you know, they usually make it up on volume. Heavy industry has to deal with depreciation of equipment, interest, maintenance costs, and smaller profit margins. So heavy industry is way more tied to economic cycles of employment, investment, and credit. All that macroeconomic stuff. Wages are about the only thing heavy industry can usually control. So they are much more much, much more opposed to organized labor. Light industry is less capital intensive and has fewer fixed costs. It is frequently more consumer oriented and its cycles are generally more tied to consumer cycles than business cycles. And of course, it's loosely more correlated to what you might call microeconomics than macroeconomics. 
I know I'm sort of butchering that, but you know, whatever. Light industry also requires fewer inputs than heavy industry, and its processed materials make items of relatively high value per unit. They have much more leeway with their inputs, and light industry has always been less militantly oppositional to organized labor than heavy industry. Heavy industry is closer to what you might call the raw id of capital itself, and has always been more closely aligned with right-wing parties. Light industry has often been tied to center-right, center, and center-left parties. Germany's labor policies in the 19th century were more in line with heavy industry's requirements and needs. But, during the Weimar Republic, light industry made major inroads into getting their needs prioritized over heavy industry. And in some ways, the rise of the Nazi party tracks with heavy industry reasserting their needs and interests back taking that away from light industry. And of course, by no means is this limited to just the Nazis, as we'll see. For example, Walter Rathenau. Rathenau was president of the General Electric Association, which is not directly related to the U.S. General Electric Company. Now, Rathenau was publicly denouncing the dictatorship of the metal and mining industries over the German economy. Rathenau, as as you might recall, was one of the biggest liberal politicians, and real Weimar heads might remember, like we talked about, that he was shot to death in 1922. We talked about this in episode 7. It was the Viking Bund slash the organization consul that killed him for a variety of reasons, not least of which being this split between heavy and light industry. Of course, you usually can't get killers to pull the trigger because of a feud between heavy and light industry. So the pretext, of course, being that he's he was a Jew, that he was tied to international finance. You know, you could just pay someone so that, you know, there's other ways of motivating. But the business interests, of course, whacked him for that reason. Now, here's where we get really nutty. Okay, you ready? Heavy industry was a strong advocate of the Reichsbank's inflationary policy because, among other reasons, it created an excellent opportunity for them to regain some of their foreign markets. Now, mind you, we're not talking about normal inflation. We're talking about Germany's hyperinflation, where workers at certain times had to cart entire wheelbarrows full of cash just to buy bread, and middle-class savings were absolutely wiped out. This is an interesting phenomenon because the average worker in the hyperinflationary environment, their wages were tied to production, so they did not see as huge of an impact on their lives. Obviously, hyperinflation is not great for anybody, but for the average working class person, it was less punishing than the middle classes. The middle classes saw their savings completely wiped out. And of course, the rich often don't have their savings in cash. So the rich generally fared hyperinflation much better than anyone. So the hyperinflation scheme basically ruined Germany's middle class. The inflation boom was profitable to heavy industry, and it hurt light industry. Light industry suffered from scarcity and high prices of raw materials, but as we saw, heavy that's not as much a concern for heavy industry. Under these very weird conditions, light industry 
actually aligned with labor to fight against the interests of heavy industry. But guess who won out? You didn't believe all that crap about German bankers just simply not knowing what they were doing printing more money, did you? There's so many stories where they were German bankers, they were mad, they just kept running the printing presses, and they didn't know what they were doing. It's all lies. Under Imperial Germany, heavy industry favored an imperialistic foreign policy, which earned them massive profits from munitions orders by the German government. The Versailles Treaty basically squashed that, at least on paper, so heavy industry would have needed to rely on foreign capital. But that wasn't coming either. So they had literally no alternative than to push back into their old expansionist program in order to get the raw materials it needed. Theoretically, if the Versailles Treaty squashed the militarism but kept their kept German exports alive, Germany literally could have turned into what it actually is today, which is a large industrial export economy. You know, what basically what the Marshall Plan did. That could have happened much sooner, but no. Instead, they tried to crush the German economy, and of course it got us World War II. Heavy industry basically always requires, or at least always advocates and pushes for a permanent state of war, or at least war readiness. You know, like it does here now in the United States. On the flip side, interestingly, light industry was always more oriented towards exports and favored international cooperation and free trade. The German General Electric Company and IG Farben had close ties to international finance and to analogous companies abroad, like ties to the General Electric Company of America and DuPont Chemical. You know, cartels, trusts, all of these things that are also malignant. (laughs) Most of their goods are non-military, so light industry really didn't care about or want or need the secret rearmament program that heavy industry and the German military wanted and needed. So big business was divided on how to handle the Versailles Treaty and its political consequences, with the major divide, of course, being heavy and light industry. Either way, though, everybody was bribing everyone. Here are the ways that big business manipulated the government. There are four different ways they would do it. First, Big business could provide financial backing for particular campaigns and elections and politicians. Two, big business could enter into alliance with political parties by having business executives run for office. You still see that, although perhaps less so now. Three, the third point is that big business could arrange for a definite but not publicized partnership with the government by naming Ministers of economics or finance. So sort of, you know, what we were saying before with the revolving door. The fourth is that big business could influence the policies of a government or politician through the ownership of newspapers and the media. You know, like pretty much how they do here in the U.S. For the first point, which was providing financial backing, that's a very great topic in any time or place, much less in the Weimar Republic, which was a time of shadows. The book, Who Financed Hitler, had a great line that reads, The exact size of these political subsidies is difficult to determine, for nowhere in the world are statements of campaign contributions paragons of honesty. Which, honestly, is kind of an understatement. Also, 
companies have always been ingenious about finding clever ways to bribe or fund politics. One common way during the Weimar era was to buy advertising space that was overvalued, which, you know, you definitely don't see anymore today with, like, say, expensive TV ads or anything like that. Or, for example, they might make a large contribution to a party building project even after the building is completed, often leaving off the donors' names. Just little tricks. Now, of course, there's all kind. There's always been many more tricks than that, but you know, you know. Also, by the way, I mentioned the secret rearmament program. So, General von Siecht, the commander in chief of the crushed and downsized Reichswehr, carried out the Versailles Treaty's mandate, which he did while evading the treaty secretly. It was not his decision alone. Many, many top German government and business officials collectively made the decision together, including Walter Rathenau, for instance, as well as the Social Democratic Party. Literally everybody basically agreed to rearm secretly. Even the USSR's Red Army made a deal. The Red Army badly needed to modernize their military. They needed expertise, technicians, and heavy industry. And so the Soviet Union helped Germany get around the Versailles Treaty. You could write several books about Germany's secret rearmament program, and I will get into it on a future episode that I've got planned, but just know that it was mainly carried out by the German military and heavy industry. They were the key drivers, and everybody else was going along or complicit. Pretty much nobody in Germany said, no, let's be crushed by the Versailles Treaty. Speaking of German heavy industry, under the Versailles Treaty, the Allied Disarmament Commission destroyed 104 million gold marks worth of heavy industry equipment, which included 93,000 machines demolished, 800,000 tools destroyed, 379 different installations smashed. All of this was very bitter for the industrialists who were subjected to it, and it made all of them more willing to fund Hitler. Now let's talk about the Ruhrlade. Now that we have a decent understanding of the different industries in Germany and their different approaches to economic policy and politics, we are well situated to talk about Heavy Industries' secret organization, the Ruhrlade. The first meeting of the Ruhrlade took place January 9th, 1928, at the Krupp via Hugel in Essen. It was organized by Paul Rusch, who was the head of the Oberhausen Coal and Steel Company. There were already above-board groups like the German Iron and Steel Industry Association we talked about with Fritz Tyson. That organization already existed to carry out normal activities, so the Ruhrlade was exclusively for secret and covert tasks. The Rulada was unique in three ways. First, it was an organization only concerning itself with heavy industry. Two, its existence was to be kept a secret. And three, its membership was limited to the upper tier of heavy industry. The key players in the Rulada were the aforementioned Paul Rusch, as well as Gustav Krupp, Fritz Tyson of United Steelworks, Paul Silverberg of the Rhenish AG, Fritz Springerum of Hoesch Iron and Steelworks, Albert Vogler, also of United Steelworks, as well as others, but those were the key players. The group consisted only of men in their 50s and 60s, all of whom were directors or owners, 
and this organization was to work on things that did not concern their normal business groups. The meetings were always hosted at their residences slash country estates slash castles, often under the pretext of hunting parties. Now, I read a passage from Who Financed Hitler. Before long, rumors of a Ruhr treasury that controlled a large political slush fund began to circulate among journalists and socialist intellectuals. They had no precise information about this mysterious all-powerful group, but it was assumed from the way other political fundraising by big, by big business was operated that this Ruhr treasury raised millions annually by a levy collected from the big firms of heavy industry. Since most heavy industry were known to be anti-communist, some writers went on to charge that a large amount of the money collected went on to finance Hitler. In those times, those in the higher circles of government became aware of the organization, and by 1932, Chancellor Brüning not only knew about its existence, but also when its meetings took place, although he did not know the identity of all the members. Some examples of the views of the Ruhrlada include strongly opposing additional welfare legislation, regulation of the workday, protesting any expansion of the state's role in the economy, and especially with regard to the government's role in arbitration of wage disputes. Tell me, is this not sounding quite like the Koch brothers and their ideological projects? On March 5th, 1928, the Ruhr decided to manage the politicals the political funds of heavy industry, a job that they had previously delegated to the National Association of German Industries. However, that organization was having internal fights between factions of heavy and light industry, so they took the political fundraising function away and managed it themselves. In general, the Ruhrlada would donate around 1,500,000 marks, and they would spread it all across the political spectrum. The disbursement was carried out in secret, with the code name for the slush fund being the euphemistic term, the economic aid account. And the group even had their own dedicated bagman. This was a lucky time for the National Socialists, because the Ruralado was in the process of losing control over the Nationalist Party. Without getting too bogged down in the history of the German Nationalist Party, Basically, it was, unsurprisingly, a German nationalist party. It represented right-wing Prussian Junker agricultural interests. At its head was a man named Alfred Hugenberg, a man with a truly phenomenal mustache. I encourage you to Google it. I'll be posting it on Twitter, as always. Under Hugenberg's direction, the nationalist party bought up tons of newspapers, publishing houses, and film studios. It ran major magazines and newspapers, and it had a wire service. They bought into the Ufa Movie Production Company and Chain of Movie Houses, and all of this was run through the Ostdeutsche Privatbank. His financial backers had their own secret trust fund backed by Junker landlords and some reactionary industrialists. That's why the Rolada didn't have full control over the German Nationalist Party. That's why they were shopping around for their own right-wing group to own, and the Nazis were like, for the love of God, please pick us. In 1929, the Young Committee signed a report which would have required Germans to pay a lower annual reparation payment, but 
it would have extended payments for another 59 years, going well into 1988. This hardened internal opposition to the Versailles Treaty and caused Hugenberg and the Nazis to form a temporary coalition to oppose the Young Plan. This campaign used Hugenberg's widespread media empire to spread their propaganda, and it got Hitler a ton of great press and coverage to normal people, who got to see both groups as the most outspoken opponents of the Young Plan and the Versailles Treaty. Ultimately, the campaign failed and the Young Plan was passed, but the PR brought the Nazis to new levels of prestige, especially among the middle class. Looking back, Fritz Tyson said the Young Plan was one of the principal causes for the upsurge of National Socialism in Germany, and this had all kinds of repercussions. And of course, Tyson was well positioned to observe and see. For example, Fritz Tyson gave the example that the German General Electric Company transferred all of its stock to a Franco-Belgian holding company, Tyson believed that this was a sign that the financial liquidation of Germany was beginning. You know, kind of like what's been happening in the United States for the past 40 years. So remember the Great Depression? You remember that thing? Well, unsurprisingly, the Great Depression hit Germany extra hard, and Hitler was already a prophet of doom, and prophets of doom do real well during massive crises like this. Unemployment in Germany went from a already pretty high 1,320,000 all the way up to probably 6 million. Tons of farmers were going bankrupt, and the Marxists were not able to harness farmer bankruptcy into political power closer to the Russian situation because the German peasants were not land-hungry in the same way that Russian peasants were. Interestingly, though, when farmers went bankrupt, there would be auctions of their farms and Nazis developed a tactic to show up in large numbers and ask the auctioneers about Jewish profiteers buying farms, or they would sometimes start fights. Rightfully or wrongfully, the Nazis gained a reputation as protectors of impoverished farmers. The Nazis, going back to the early days, already had a system in place for barracks and soup kitchens for their men, so they kept that going and expanded it, which of course was very popular during the Great Depression. During the Depression, industrial production went down by half. Although the Tyson Steelworks could make twice as much steel as England, they were frequently shut down. Tent cities went up everywhere. You could hear singing all over the country, which sounds nice until you realize they were singing for bread, which makes it very sad. Now let's get some inside baseball out of the way. Heinrich Brüning of the Catholic Center Party became chancellor in 1930. He was backed by General Kurt von Schleicher, who we know from episode 4 about Hitler's hypnosis. He was the guy who got Hitler's patient file and was then murdered in the Night of the Long Knives. Schleicher was put in charge of military intelligence and was put in charge of the relations between the Reichstag and the German military. Apart from and including that, Schleicher had positioned himself as a political kingmaker and power broker, and he ensured that he was just out of the spotlight. Schleicher, for his own ends, undermined Alfred Hugenberg of the German Nationalist Party, and he contrived the Nationalist Party's split, which that itself gave the Nazis an opportunity to make huge gains. 
Around the same time, Hitler expelled Otto Strasser, who was the head of the leftist elements of the Nazi party. And of course, we already mentioned he went on to form the German Racist Party, which was marginal. Nobody wants to join that. So expelling Strasser helped reinforce Hitler's control over his own party. The Nazis were lucky during these elections. Hitler did not have to attack the SPD because the bourgeois center parties were already attacking the SPD. Hitler only had to attack the moderate parties themselves. And of course, the moderate parties were looking real bad to people in 1930. The SPD was also under attack from the communists. Nobody was watching the Nazis, and the Nazis had no track of failure, which is always a good thing in a time of massive failures of everyone else. Only the KPD, the German Communist Party, had a similar clean track record. Now is a good time to talk about Franz Xavier Schwartz, who was the Nazi Party's accountant. But you never thought to think about Nazi accounting, did you? So, being an accountant for a broke extremist political party in Weimar, Germany, that's like the perfect laboratory for what you might euphemistically call creative accounting. And that is what Schwartz specialized in. He juggled the party books in all kinds of creative ways. He would delay payments of salaries and bills strategically. He would mortgage and double mortgage and triple mortgage party cars and assets. All the tricks you might expect. Schwartz was successful in getting the party vital credit from banks. In some ways, Schwartz knew all the secrets. There were certain things that only Hitler and Schwartz knew. Because, quote, all the data concerning the sources of the Nazi party income were assembled in Schwartz's office. Every fenning was booked as to its origin with meticulous care. Treasurer Schwartz's accounts have never been found. This is one of the greatest mysteries surrounding the last days of the Nazi regime. Hitler trusted Schwartz completely and consequently told him the source of even anonymous contributions so that the name of the donor could be recorded and so that that source could, of course, be approached again in the future. Which industrialists contributed to Hitler before 1933, and precisely how much did they give? All of this information was out there. This is, along with the other things we mentioned, the, this is one of the key secrets that the Nazis held. Forget about Nazi UFOs, man. I want to see the Nazi accounting books. So we get to another way that the Nazis got funding. They did basic, broke, small business owner tactics, delaying expenses, clever accounting tricks, you know, normal stuff. Schwartz himself is interesting, though, for all the obvious reasons, but also because there are mixed accounts of his death. And I need to research this more. I need to go find more books because who financed Hitler and Wikipedia and Wikipedia's sources tell two different stories. I'll tell them both to you and you can decide. Who financed Hitler reads, Schwartz was taken prisoner. He was continuously and brutally interrogated by overzealous American investigators trying to discover information that would incriminate German big business. The use of such heavy-handed methods was a stupid mistake, for the Nazi treasurer was in poor health and could not withstand the strain. 
He died in 1946, carrying his secret with him to the grave. Wikipedia says, Schwartz died in an Allied internment camp near Regensburg on the 2nd of December 1947 due to recurring gastric troubles. He was 72. You notice that? There's a year's difference in his death between the two accounts. And the book says that he was beaten to death by U.S. investigators, while Wikipedia says he died due to recurring gastric troubles. Like what, did he crap himself to death? What does that mean? I don't know which sounds like a more likely story to you, but I'm assuming that the book has the correct version until I confirm otherwise. And I don't think it's impossible to assume or at least posit the theory that he could have been beaten to death to protect big business, actually, whether German or American, considering who was running military intelligence at the time. Just pure speculation here, but I'm using the Angleton mindset, and I'm imagining what could have happened. Oh, and here's the best part. Schwartz's accounting records? Gone. Nothing to see here, folks. Just move along. So, let's talk about the election. In 1930, the Nazi party suddenly found themselves the second largest political party based off of the number of seats in the Reichstag. This happened because the KPD, the German Communist Party, they were in the business of taking votes away from the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party, and then the Nazis mainly eroded the moderate and conservative chunks of the pie. In terms of actual voters, the Nazis mainly succeeded with people who had the types of jobs that were most severely impacted by the economic crisis. We're talking clerks, office workers, small shopkeepers, farmers, totally different groups than the people funding the Nazi party. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar? The Ruhrlada did not give the Nazi party any money for the 1930 election. But, after the Nazis had such a good showing, the Ruhrlada did start to give them money. Also, Interestingly, the Volkischer Beobachter, the Nazi newspaper, even though it had been operating on sound financial footing since 1926, from 1930 on, it was actually making a substantial profit. So among all the other sources we've talked about, that is another source of Nazi funding. Also, although it doesn't directly relate to our story, it will come up later, Ernst Röhm, the leader of the SA, he had left Germany to go instruct the Bolivian army. Which, I know you can't see me, dear listener, but I have lowered my glasses down my nose, and I am now peering at you, giving you a knowing glance. As, of course, Bolivia would have recurring Nazi problems in the post-war era, culminating in the cocaine coup of 1980 involving one Klaus Barbie, the butcher of Lyon. Anyway, I thought it was interesting because I found out that Hermann Göring was probably the one who leaked the news of Ernst Röhm's homosexuality to the press. He did that to shore up and consolidate his own power in the Nazi party by weakening Röhm's. Just some interesting inter-Nazi feuding. Also, apparently Röhm was closer to General Schleicher, and of course the two would both be murdered on the Night of the Long Knives. In 1930... Trade unions and the largest employers in Germany met and discussed lowering wages. Obviously, I'm not a fan of the concept personally, but I understand how it might be necessary under those conditions. This plan to lower wages probably 
would have worked, or at least it would have helped, until the U.S. passed the Hawley-Smoot Tariff. This tariff completely ruined Germany all over again regarding German exports, which, as we have said, the German economy is perilously dependent on German exports. According to some experts, the Hawley-Smoot Tariff exacerbated the Great Depression in the U.S. as well. That's debatable, but I think it was probably the case. As a side note, the Smoot part of the Hawley-Smoot Tariff was named after Reed Smoot, who was the polygamist senator from Utah. That's right, Congress at one point had a polygamist senator. Reed Smoot had two wives, and it scandalized Congress. It was a whole thing. So, in response to the tariff, and in a desperate attempt to make money to pay reparations, in April 1931, Germany tried to make a customs union with Austria. France blocked it. <laughs> and then the Credit Anstalt, which was a Rothschild bank, which I note because the Nazis definitely made hay out of it. The Credit Anstalt started pulling Austrian credit in response, which then crashed the Austrian economy. Austria's economy crashing caused a run on Austrian banks, which then caused a run on German banks, which then caused a run on London's banks. As always, the countries hit hardest are the poorest. In this case, it was Germany. The Reichsbank lost 200 million marks of gold reserves and foreign exchange in the first week of June alone, and 1 billion by the end of next week, completely stopping all German industry everywhere. Several major companies went bankrupt, and all of this redounded to the benefit of the Nazi party. Then, in the summer of 1931, as far as we know, the Ruhrlada made its first contribution to the Nazi party. It wasn't even that much money, reportedly somewhere in the tens of thousands, but it marked a major shift because now the Nazis were at least in the same constellation of serious parties, all of which were showered with funds in order for the Ruhrlada to stay on good terms with everyone and have a claim on everybody. <clears throat> Interestingly too, the Ruhrlada specifically gave funds to one particular Nazi, not just the party in general. They gave their funds to Walter Funk, the newspaper pundit turned Nazi economist. They gave the money to him to strengthen his position in the party because they liked and trusted his brand of that great euphemism called sound economic policy. They liked him from way back when he was writing for the newspapers. Funk acted as a counterbalance to the left wing of the Nazi party and as a reward for his actions, industrialists eventually gave him his own large estate in Bavaria. Now, Funk advocated for what he called organized capitalism, which consisted of prices of raw materials controlled, government loans to owners of great Prussian estates, key utilities owned by the government, including railroad, telegraph, telephone, gas, and water, agriculture being subsidized and protected by tariffs, government funds available to private banks, and big banks controlled by Germany's private industry through great vertical trusts and 2,500 cartels. What Funk wanted is what ended up happening regarding Nazi Germany's policies. And of course, remember, 
it didn't have to be this way. The Nazi party could have developed in some other fashion. But the Rurlada gave their money to Funk. Funk wanted these things, which essentially was what heavy industry wanted, and that is what the Nazis chose to enact. Funk joined the Nazi party initially at the suggestion of heavy industry's mine owners, who he was already shilling for. Funk was later convicted as a war criminal at Nuremberg, which is pretty cool. But the same heavy industrialists were not convicted as war criminals. Let that be another programmed chill life lesson. Shilling's real good money, but it'll be you on the stand at Nuremberg, not whoever paid you. Here's another life lesson for all the pundits and media figures out there. Funk's testimony at the Nuremberg trials threw some light on the relationship between heavy industry and the Nazi party. Funk stated that big German firms like Big Business and other countries gave contributions to competing parties whether or not they approved of all their principles, and the amount given to the National Socialists was less than the sums given to other parties. According to Funk, even the Social Democrats were heavily supported by Big Business. Some of the directors of Germany's largest firms were pro-Nazi, and he mentioned the directors of Siemens, IG Farben, Krupp, and several Hamburg shipping companies. On July 9, 1931, Hitler and the newly weakened Alfred Hugenberg brokered a coalition to bring down the Weimar government. In the fall of 1931, General von Schleicher arranged an interview between Hitler and President von Hindenburg to discuss the possibility of making Hitler Chancellor. Hitler was nervous because Hindenburg was still an epic figure among nationalist Germans, so Hitler brought Hermann Göring to accompany him to the meeting. This is interesting and funny because Göring's wife was on her deathbed, but Hitler still called and Göring still went to accompany him to the meeting. Hitler did not impress President Hindenburg very much, and Hitler did not get the chancellorship in 1931, but he left for the Brocken. This point brings us back up into esoteric Nazism territory to round out the episode. So, the Brocken is the highest peak in the Harz Mountains, and it has always held a unique position at every point in German history. Let's talk about it for a minute. The Brocken Mountain has something called the Brocken Specter, which is an interesting light phenomenon where a person's magnified shadow can be cast upon clouds opposite the sun's direction. It shows a person surrounded by almost like a halo, like light rings. It's truly freaky and spectacular. It's, it's weird. I'm going to post the picture. You can Google it. You can see it on Twitter. It was originally classified in scientific terms in 1780, but of course people knew about it going way back. And it certainly had something to do with the folk traditions involving the Brocken. The folk traditions involved witches and devils, that is. Legend has it, the Brocken is where witches would go for Hexenacht, as they called it in Bavaria. Witches would hold their Sabbaths there. Goethe included the Brocken in his famous play Faust. Faust reads, 
Now to the Brocken the witches ride. The stubble is gold and the corn is green. There is the carnival crew to be seen, and Squire Uranius will come to preside. So over the valleys our company floats, with witches a-farting on stinking old goats. The Brocken is often claimed to be the inspiration for Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain, a popular composition that was used for the soundtrack to The Wizard of Oz, specifically the tower scene, and for the Chernobog scene in the film Fantasia. If you forgot, go watch the Night on Bald Mountain scene in Fantasia. It's on YouTube. It is terrifying. Again, dear listener, I am giving you a knowing look. I have lowered my glasses. I'm looking, peering at you knowingly. Just know, one day we'll get to the rumors about those two films. Later on, the Brocken would become the site of the world's first TV tower, which broadcast the 1936 Olympic Games. Because let's never forget that high technology is fundamentally not different from occult spiritual technologies. The Brocken also held a number of radio stations. During the Cold War, on the border between East and West Germany, the border ran through the Harz Mountains. And in 1947, the Brocken became part of the Soviet zone and was walled in as a strategic high-security military zone, with the Stasi occupying the TV tower and the spy domes. In 1994, the Soviet installations were removed and the Brocken was returned to the now-unified West German government. Also, in the novel Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, the character Slothrop and Geli Tripping go to the Brocken and experience the famous Brocken Spectre. So, why are we talking about the Brocken at all? Well... On the 11th of October 1931, the Nazis held a great patriotic rally at Bad Harzburg, a resort town in the Harz Mountains near the Brocken. The town had a spa famous for its chloride and ferrous waters. This wasn't just a Nazi rally. This was a collection of every major and minor group on the political right. We're talking the Nazis, of course, but we're talking the Nationalist Party, the Stahlhelm, the Junker Landlords, and all of their different groups. The Bismarck Youth, the Pan-Germans. Also present were prominent members from all the royal families, German industry and big business, generals and admirals. It was, to date, the largest political gathering ever, including the absolute upper tier of power in Germany. We're talking Fritz Tyson, Alfred Hugenberg, Franz Selt, Jalmar Schott, two sons of the Kaiser, namely Prince August Wilhelm and Prince Eitel Friedrich. The list goes on and on and on. The purpose of the rally was to unite all rightist elements into a common effort to oust the Bruning cabinet and to set up a national government. As you might expect, there were way too many speeches, and every single group was trying to jockey for a position. The Nazis excelled, however, and they, of course, were well-versed in theatrics, so they tended to dominate, thanks to their now Olympic-level prowess in public displays of force and grandeur. You might even be tempted to call this a mass ritual, perhaps, if you were so inclined. Hitler even managed to score some political points by refusing to eat a five-course meal with all of these distinguished guests, while knowing that some of his stormtroopers were going hungry. So, apparently what stole the show came at the very end of the rally. It certainly ate up all the headlines. 
since Hitler delivers speech at rally is not newsworthy and nobody really cared. Dr. Schott, who was at that point the former Reichsbank president and generally not ever involved in politics, gave what some called a brief but sharply formulated speech. In this speech, Schott stressed that he spoke only as an economist and not as a member of any party. Schott continued by outlining the general economic situation. Production was down by one-third. Unemployment was still rising. Foreign indebtedness was growing. The currency was not being properly protected, he asserted, but was being used to cover the bankruptcy of banks and the state treasury. Schott said that the public reports of the Reichsbank did not show its real status because most of its security was borrowed. Schott concluded his speech by charging the Reichsbank of lending money to the government without proper coverage, something which he called a dangerous practice. Now, those who study monetary policy, and by no means am I an expert, those who study this or know anything about it know that there is a unique mixture of trust and secrecy. The revelation that the emperor wears no clothes, that revelation is itself a ritual. Banking insiders would call this breaking the unwritten rules of the game. Bankers, like spies, are required to know that there are certain things that they can never publicly say. And the act of disclosing certain information is essentially an act of war. In this case, Schott was declaring war on the Bruning government. Basically lighting a fire on a bridge, and on the other side of the bridge is the Weimar Republic. President Hindenburg, thanks to Dr. Schott's betrayal and all the other pressures mounting upon him, suffered a complete mental breakdown for 10 days. This breakdown became a state secret. As we end the episode, we start to see how the Nazi party was picking up speed and momentum, rolling towards their inevitable seizure of power. It won't be long now. Four sources. Today I referred, of course, to the wonderful book Who Financed Hitler, but I also drew upon an incredible book of art by an artist named Suzanne Treister. The book is called Hexen 2039. I cannot recommend it enough. I have posted images of it on my Twitter from time to time. The thumbnail is of the Brocken. But seriously, look up the art. It's fantastic. And as always, I just want to thank you for listening, dear listener. I need to get scooting. I'm on my way to Kellinghall in Norfolk, England. See you next week, and God bless.